0: Well, good morning, everyone. If you would take out your bulletin, I want to uh, point something out to you. In the back of the bulletin, I wrote a little excerpt as I do each week. Yeah, just give me some water if you don't mind. Just pull me a cup. <clears throat> there, um, one of the things I wanted to do is just kind of give you a quick update in regards to our children's ministry, and um, ignore the man behind the curtain. <laughs> Thanks, Graham. As you know, uh, Cindy Park has served our church family for many years and uh, has decided to move on to new areas of ministry, which, by the way, includes the fact that she will be bringing homemade Butterfinger ice cream tonight. She is ministering to me personally. But uh, she did a great job of laying things out. Christy Hollinshed has come in and has just done a wonderful job picking things up and and going through the summer and preparing for the fall. Kind of in a similar way, Janet Brooks has served us over the last year, has done a great job as nursery coordinator. She, too, has everything lined out for the summer and has really decided to pursue uh, areas of ministry in Melanie Park as well, and so... Christy Connor has stepped right into where Janet left off, and she's picking up and carrying on. I wanted you to know all this so that you can just praise God for the way He has provided for our church so seamlessly in these transitions. So the things that are really important to us, like children's ministry, just carry on without skipping a beat. And we just want to give praise to God for the way He has done these things ahead of us, and we're just walking in them. So. Thankful for that. And I do hope you come tonight to the picnic. It's one of the few times during the year that we have a chance to all come together as a church family and just enjoy fellowship with one another, and you won't regret it. So uh, I hope that you come. I'm going to take a drink because I've got allergies. Well, there's a story that Mark Twain tells about an encounter that he had with a ruthless businessman from Boston. And this man kind of boasted in how once he decided to do something, nobody ever got in his way. In fact, he goes on to tell that Mark Twain on one particular occasion that one of his life dreams that he intended to do was to go to the Holy Land, to walk up to Mount Sinai, stand on top and at the top of his voice, just shout out the Ten Commandments. Well, Mark Twain was unimpressed. He looked at this man and says, I got a better idea. Why don't you just stay in Boston and try to keep them? <laughs> right? And I think a lot of times we're like that. We, we have one profession of what we believe obedience to be, but our life doesn't always match what our words proclaim. And one of the reasons that's true is because when you talk about obedience, there's a lot of different definitions that come into mind. For example, there's blind obedience, right? Right? This is the idea of of doing something out of fear or apathy. It's this kind of concept of going along just to get along. And if taken to an extreme, it can be really dangerous, because I believe that's what you see in the history of Nazi Germany, where people just kind of turn the blind eye, go along to get along, and before they know it, a tyrant is in control, and they're following lockstep behind them. Another idea of obedience comes from this idea of selective obedience. It's what I believe the Bible has in mind when it says that every man does what is right in his own eyes. I am obedient to the things that I find important, and and you do your set, and we all just do what's right in our own eyes. We selectively obey. Then there's this idea of guilty obedience, where I do what I'm supposed to do, not because I want to, but because I have to. And taken to an extreme, this is where we fall into legalism where we end up doing things not because our heart is in it but just out of compliance it's legalism but i believe the bible has a totally different definition of what obedience is supposed to be and it and it comes from this idea of loving obedience where we do things that god says out, out of trust out of respect out of belief that he has our best in mind but so with So many definitions, that's a a hard concept to to land on sometimes. It reminds me of a story of a missionary who was working in a tribal area trying to translate the Bible into this native tongue. It was really difficult for him. He was having trouble finding words that they speak to to match the, the, the words in Scripture. And one of those words happens to be obedience. He just couldn't come up with the word that they had in their language that he could translate for them. One day he was with one of the natives in this village and, and as he was there they were talking and the missionary had a dog uh, that was his pet that was there with him. And he whistled for his dog and immediately that dog came right to him and stood right there beside him. The native who was with him says, boy, your dog is all ears. Immediately he knew his word for obedience. It's that word that he was using to describe that dog. He's all ears. It's interesting as you think about that story because it relates very specifically to what the Greek word intended when it gives us this word obedience. The Greek word is hubakue, which literally means to listen under. Two words, to listen under. It's this idea of trusting someone's word following what they say. So this idea of biblical evidence then describes our willingness to do what God says because we trust His Word. And if that's the case, and I believe it is, then obedience then becomes an outcome of our faith, not a requirement. It's a sign of our Belief, not a condition. Because biblical obedience flows out of our fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's precisely what John intends for us to understand in our passage this morning. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord together in prayer. God, give us eyes to see. I pray that as we open your word this morning, that we would understand your definition Of obedience, what you have on your heart and in your mind as it relates to this call upon our life. We recognize, as we've already talked about, that there are lots of definitions in our world, different opinions of what this needs to look like. So I pray that what we finish with today is the only opinion that matters, and that's yours, and that we hear and understand that clearly through your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would turn to 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. Just as a reminder, as we uh, uh, began back in chapter 1, verse 1, we see how how John began his letter by establishing the basis of his teaching. Remember that? He said that everything that he proclaims is based on his eyewitness testimony of that promise that Jesus made To have eternal life. everything He says, what we have seen, what we have heard, we proclaim to you. And he goes on to explain how that promise is fulfilled. That promise of eternal life. When we have fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And he goes on, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and he he confronts these false teachers who were claiming to have fellowship with God, but yet walking in darkness is what he says. Now, I got to thinking about this a little bit this week, and I thought, boy, in that context, that was a pretty bold statement, to claim to have fellowship with God. We, we kind of gloss right past that and don't catch that, but, but I think there's some significance there, and this is why I began to, to think about it this week. Think about the Old Testament context that these people would have been falling behind. That was their perspective, the lens through which they viewed much of their religious life. And if you think about the Old Testament, not everybody was walking around claiming to have fellowship with God, were they? In fact, you had specific people like Moses who met with God. And then Moses spoke to the people. But the people, in fact, were afraid, in many cases, to approach God as Moses did. Then you had the prophets, right, who they too spoke on behalf of God. Not everyone was walking around claiming to have the same fellowship and understanding as they did. In fact, there was a pretty big uh, thread, if you will, in Scripture that says, listen, if, a prof- if there's a man who claims to be a prophet and he gives some testimony that doesn't come true, then he is a false prophet and needs to die. So you can imagine not everybody's standing in line for that job, right? And then look at the religious system with the high priest. One man, one time of year, enters into the presence of God. And so, but now, in the context of this letter, you have people who are claiming to have that same fellowship with god and yet john says they are walking in spiritual darkness we talked about how that spiritual darkness existed because they were claiming to have fellowship with god while rejecting the sacrifice that jesus made on the cross they did so because they didn't see a necessity for a savior by virtue of the fact that they didn't see a sin nature in their heart they were able to approach God on their own merits and boldly proclaim that to be true. But John says if that's true, then you're making God a liar because everything He said points to our need for a Savior. And then he turns his focus to those Christians that he's writing to, to give them assurance of their salvation. And he tells them that if you walk in the, in the light... <laughs> Then you're going to recognize the sin that's in your heart. And you're going to turn to God for a solution, and you'll understand that the answer is, is Jesus and His blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And our confession of our dependence upon Him, as John explains it, is not just a one time event. It, it becomes a lifetime pattern to the point, as He says in verse 1, chapter 1, 9, He says that Christians are people of confession. People who routinely come before the Lord recognizing His forgiveness. Desiring to live pure lives, as he goes on to say, in response to God's grace. So with that as the backdrop, John then turns from responding in gratitude for God's forgiveness to this desire to live in obedience. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. It says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him. If we keep his commandments, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. You probably recognize in just these few verses, John repeating a word, to know, to know. In fact, that word is so important to John that he repeats it some 25 times in this short letter. That's an average of five times per chapter. It's really important for him to, to communicate that word to us. And that word, to know, means to have an assurance, to, to have some certainty. We saw that show up in the theme verse of his letter that we've looked at before when he says, I'm writing that you may know that you have eternal life. And now he goes on to say in verse 3, one of the ways that you gain that assurance, that, that certainty, is by following him in a life of obedience. And then he immediately, in verse 4, contrasts that with false teachers. Who are again are claiming to know God, but yet they are not keeping his commandments. when I read that verse four, I thought, boy, that sounds familiar, and I thought back to what we looked at in, in chapter one, verse ten, look at that, just flip back a page if you need to It says, if we say that we have come that we have not sinned, in other words, if we don't need we don't need a savior, then we make God a liar, and his word is not in us and then in verse four, it says if we say that I have come to know Him and do not keep His commandments, then I am a liar and the truth is not in me. You see, I believe what John is trying to communicate here is that when we are unwilling to accept the testimony of Jesus, we are saying that we believe that we don't need Him. We are not taking Him at His word. As, as God incarnate, we are not accepting what he says to be true, and therefore we are making God a liar. But when we are willing to, to come under that teaching of Jesus, to, to conform our life to the truth he speaks, then we become the liar. Because now we are claiming to know truth apart from knowing Christ. And that's not possible. Because Jesus himself said, What? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So John is writing to give us an assurance of salvation by speaking to those who desire to do what Jesus says. Those who believe that His way is better than their way. <clears throat> and let me remind you, this is, this is a hard issue, Okay? A heart issue. And John is not writing so that I can look upon someone else's life to determine what their eternal destiny might be. Right? He says, I am writing to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. And in this, in this statement, in, in this passage, he's essentially implying the question, do you desire to follow the teachings of Christ? Do you want to align your life to His Word? And if that's your desire, then you can have assurance that you are His child. And here's why. I'm going to give you several verses. You probably can't keep up with me, so you can just mark these down if you want to. John 14, 26. This is one we've looked at before. Jesus says this. He says, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. Verse 26. It says but the helper the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that i said to you and then in verse uh, chapter 16 verse 28 he says this excuse me verse 8 and when he comes speaking of the spirit he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment and Paul will go on to write in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, that no one says Jesus is Lord except how? By the Holy Spirit. He will write to the Galatians and say that we walk by the Spirit, and when we do, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So if we put all these things together, what it's telling us is that the knowledge, the conviction, the desire, even the power to walk in the things that God has called us to exist Only when His Spirit resides within us through faith in Jesus Christ. What seems to be John's point in verse 5, look at what he says again. But whoever keeps His Word, in Him the love of God has truly been perfected. His love is perfected in us when His Spirit, the very essence of His love, resides in us. And in fact, we cannot keep His commands apart from His Spirit. That tells us that someone who claims to know God, but yet doesn't obey God's commands, only reveals that God's Spirit is not the one who is ultimately in control. The bottom line is, you cannot have assurance of your salvation if God's Spirit is not in control of your life. On our way back from Mexico, I was listening in on a conversation, had this same conversation with people before, as they were sharing their testimonies and talking about their journey of faith. And it's not uncommon for somebody to, to talk about how they came to know uh, Christ as, as a young boy. And then at some point in their life, they kind of got off track. And, and then you know, the Lord got their attention and, and brought them back to a place where they were walking in, in faith uh, to him and <clears throat> the question came up. Well, as I look back, I wonder, I wonder if I my, I really ever believed was that was that decision as a young boy authentic? I've been asked that question a number of times, and and here's my answer. I don't know because I can't judge another person's heart. And at some level, <laughs> to be honest, it really doesn't matter what happened back then because what really matters is what's happening right now what i do know based on what john is saying in our passage this morning is that no one me you anyone else can have assurance of our salvation if we're not following god's commands in fact, i think that's the reason the question comes up to begin with did i truly believe because we simply can't have that assurance in our life of faith if our profession of faith doesn't match so John says, I want you to have confidence. I want you to have assurance. Not because of perfect obedience. I want you to notice what he says in verse 5. It's not because of perfect obedience. It's because of what? Perfect what? Perfect love. Whose love? His love. Our obedience does not merit His love. Instead, His love is the motivation for our obedience. In other words, the magnitude of His love is not a reaction to our obedience. This passage tells us that we have, when we have come to put our faith and trust in Him, His love has been perfected in us. That is a past tense with a present reality. It's done. It's been perfected in us. Therefore, our desire to grow in obedience should always be in response to His Already perfect, perfected love. So that when our actions are a response to his love, that's when we gain our assurance that we are his child. This is, this order that I think he gives is important because it protects us from the wrong idea that our actions in some way merit his love. That somehow we gain his affection by our obedience. That's not true. This verse is telling us that God's love is perfected in those who trust in Christ. And what's perfected, what's perfect, is complete. It can't be changed. It can't be diminished. It's mature. It's, it's finished. And so our imperfect obedience is a response to His perfect love. Our Assurance is based on what He has completed, not on what we must do. So let's take that idea just a step further and see how that unfolds in our life. Because I believe that we grow in our knowledge of God's love through our obedience. One of the things that I would do as I talk through this is, is point back to Jeremiah 29, 11 very familiar verse that many of us have read before. It says, for God speaking, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. He wants to prosper us, not, not to harm us. He goes on in chapter 38, verse 20 of Jeremiah. And he tells us, that God speaking, he's saying, obey what I say. So that it may go well with you. And you may live. In other words, trust That I have your best at heart. Know what my plans are for you. Not to harm, but to prosper. If you would turn to John chapter 15 verse 10. Let's look at this one together. John chapter 15 verse 10. These are the words of Jesus. We've looked at these before as well. Verse 10 he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. You see what Jesus is saying here. Just abide in my love. Keep my commandments. God's instruction is given for our good. And when we trust in His Word and follow in His ways, we experience his best for our lives. We learn from that experience what his love is all about. So another way to say that is that that our obedience is the means by we by which we translate the knowledge of his love into the experience of his love. That's the idea that John has in mind as he goes on and I think gives us the clearest testament of what he's trying to communicate back in first john chapter 2 verse 6 when he says by this we know that we are in him the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked perhaps john had in mind this idea of us needing to kind of mirror our actions based on what we see in the life of christ that idea of what would jesus do right And there probably is some truth to that. I think that's an admirable goal. But Jesus did a number of things that I don't know that John particularly had in mind when he made that statement. We've looked at some of them, right? Made the blind to see. He raised the dead. Cast out some demons. And and he forgave people. These are not bad things, but I don't know that it's necessarily what, what John had in mind when he spoke this passage to us. fact jesus did many things based on a divine authority that we don't necessarily have so perhaps and i want you to just consider it this morning perhaps what john had in mind here is that our walk has less to do with specific actions and more to do with the heart behind them because the fact of the matter is god's people have been known to do a lot of the right actions with all the wrong heart You don't have to turn there, but let me give you an example of that. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. Listen to this. God speaking. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings and of of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires you of this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon, Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure the iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am wary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. You, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Those are some strong words. And and what God is speaking to with the Israelites are the things He's prescribed for them. But the the problem is, is that their heart, even though they are going through the actions, is not right, and therefore those actions become detestable in His sight. These were actions God prescribed that the people were performing. But they were detestable in His sight because their heart, was not right. So let me suggest to you that walking in the same manner that Jesus walked has, more, has less to do with conforming our actions and more to do with conforming our heart. To walk in the same manner as Jesus walked is to follow His example of laying aside His own will to do the will of the Father. Remember, he said it, not my will, but thy will be done. And there's other passages. Let me give you a few examples. John chapter 5, verse 30. John chapter 5, verse 30. And again, we've looked at many of these before, but let me just remind you what they say. John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus speaking. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will but the will of Him who sent me. A few more chapters back. Chapter 8, verse 28. Jesus again speaking says, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things that the Father has taught me. And then in chapter 14, we looked at this one, I think, a couple of weeks ago when Philip questioned, just show us the Father and that will be enough. And, And Jesus explains, listen, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. And he says in that conversation, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. The point is, is that the example of Christ that we are to follow is his submission to the will of the Father. Because as long as we are following God's will, we will always walk in His ways. And disobedience is always, always, always a decision that we make to do what we want instead of what He wants. That's why Christ's life was sinless. Because He never did anything outside of God's will. Now, let's be honest and recognize the fact that you and I are not going to live a life of perfect obedience, right? And so, in order for us to walk more consistently in a life of obedience, we need to trust Him more than we trust ourselves. We need to learn to follow Him more than we follow our own desires. We need to do this because we are convinced both through the knowledge and the experience of His perfect love within us. So maybe instead of asking, what would Jesus do, we might need to ask the question, Lord, what is your will? Show me your way. So as we think about what John has to say about obedience from a biblical perspective, I want to take that truth and and translate it into how we live our life. And I want to do that in, in three areas that I think are really important. And I want to help us all grasp this together. The first is I want to talk about how it impacts who we are as parents with our kids. I want to talk about how it impacts what we tell our friends. And I want us to consider together what it means in our own lives as well. A few weeks ago, I received, as I often get through the mail, an offer for a free DVD. Well, this one was by Chip Ingram, who I really respect, admire his teaching, and it was on parenting. And I thought, boy, I'd like to get my hands on that just for our church family. And so I ordered it, got it in, uh, and thought, I'm going to take a look at it and and watch the first session and thought, oh boy, this this is really good. So my next thought was maybe Terry and I could go through it together. But as we got to talking, we thought, you know what? Graham has some friends whose families, a number of them, live in our neighborhood. So why don't we just see if they want to do this with us? We'll invite them over to our house and we'll go through this study together. So we began to do that several weeks ago. And it has been tremendous. (laughs) This last session, I think it was last week, Chip talks about this idea of obedience. Learning obedience. And he makes the point that that adults are are told about this idea of obedience in a number of aspects of their life. Who they are as husbands, and as it applies to who they are as wives, sometimes as workers, sometimes as employers, citizens of government, so forth and so on. But he says, and and I believe this is true, he's looked throughout Scripture and there is only one single command given to children in all of Scripture. And it is this, children learn to obey that's it that's the one single command given to children and the best place for them to learn that is in their home in the context of their family in fact turn to ephesians chapter 6 let's just look at this one together ephesians chapter 6 verse 1 here is the one single command given to children it says children Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And so, parents, let me just turn to you and say, boy, if that's the the single most important command given to our kids, shouldn't that tell us what our highest priority is as their parents? Because how can a child, think about this, how can a child learn to trust in a God whom they cannot see if they do not learn to trust and obey you whom they can see? Remember, obedience is a heart issue. That's why I believe it says in verse 4, and fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of God. Of the Lord. So I think part of what, John, or what the, the writer is saying here is do not do this one size fits all domineering, do it because I said so, period, for the rest of their lives. Learning obedience looks different for our kids as they grow and mature. So starting out, we need to keep it simple, not a lot of explanation. From that, you know, up till five years old or so, they're very concrete thinkers, right? Don't touch the stove. Don't play in the street. That's dangerous. Don't open the door to somebody that you don't recognize. Right? Very concrete, simple answers. But as they get older, that doesn't work any longer because now the relationship becomes important. And we begin to describe why we say the things we say. And I hope as parents that we give some biblical answers as to why we say that. Dad, I want to go out with so-and-so. You know, son, I know that, that that is something that you want to do, but... We're both familiar with their history. And let's look at Proverbs together. It says, A bad company corrupts good morals. And you're a good kid. I'm really concerned that if you start hanging around with the wrong people, all that changes. Dad, I want to go to this movie that everybody else is going to. Why can't I do what everybody else is doing? Son, let's talk about what Scripture says. Set your mind on things above. And not on things of the earth. And boy, if you desire what is true in the earth and what exists in the world, then it just doesn't go well. Scripture makes that real clear. So we just got to trust that God's right and believe what He says. And Now, as I am a parent of a teenager, just starting out, one of the things that I'm increasingly convinced I'm in trying to do a better job of is that parents of teenagers need to be good question-askers. Good question askers. Why do you believe that's true? Tell me why you think, what you think about that. What would you do in this situation? Son, how did that go for you? Talk to me about that. We can no longer use that because I said so line when they need to begin to understand and make decisions for themselves. We need to teach them to obey in the context of, of love and respect so that one day they might take that knowledge of what it means to obey based on that trust and love and apply it to a relationship with Jesus Christ. So let me just speak specifically to students, children, people who are living under the roof of their parents right now. So listen closely. The good news is is that God's given you one single command. Obey your mother and your father. He says learn to obey, learn to respect, learn to trust. And let me tell you something. There's going to be times as a young man, a young woman, as a boy or a girl, that you're not going to understand. It may not make any sense to you. But you're going to do what they say because you believe that they have your best interests in mind and you want to trust them. You want to follow them. Because you believe that's true. Because here's what's important. Someday, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the same thing's going to happen. You're going to want to learn to obey and to trust. And I promise you, there's going to be times where you do not understand. That it may not make any sense to you. But you're going to want to do it because you have the conviction of His love for you. Of His hope to, to prosper you that you believe that He has His best interest in mind for you. And so you just do what He says. Children, students, if you can't learn that in your own home, it would be very difficult for you to translate it into your relationship with Jesus Christ. So learn to obey. The other area that I think understanding biblical obedience is important is what we tell our friends, how we interact with our neighbors and our coworkers. The key point here is to understand that, that obedience is an outcome of genuine faith and not a requirement. It's a sign of genuine faith, not a condition. That's important because when we are interacting with those around us about what it means to, to follow Christ, if obedience comes before faith, essentially what, they're, what we're telling them is, listen, for God to accept you, you need to get everything right in your life. You need to get everything in order so that you present yourself to Him in a manner that He finds acceptable. That's not true. Okay. A relationship with Jesus Christ begins with faith. So that He is the one that brings order out of chaos. He is the one that brings light into your darkness. He is the one that shows you freedom in the midst of that slavery to sin that you've known. He is the one who makes all things new. Not me. Not you. Our command in Scripture is to walk in the good works that He's prepared beforehand. To follow Him in obedience because we understand His love and trust His ways. I've told you this story before. I mentioned it again to some friends this last week about a, a gentleman and Russell had the privilege of being a part of this with me that used to work for me when I was at the hospital. He's very open about his lifestyle. He was a homosexual and, and had no problems telling people about that, lived that very openly. And uh, he also knew where I stood in my faith. But we got a chance to get to know each other as he worked for me. And I think he expected me to condemn him, and and I didn't. I treated him as a friend and got a chance to get to know him. And what that did is it opened up an opportunity for him to kind of tell me that stuff was not right with his life. Now, the tendency at this point is to say, well, of course it's not. Look at the way you're living, right? And start addressing what he needs to do in obedience before he comes to an understanding of what it means to have faith. I was unwilling to do that. By the Spirit of God, I believe he led me to have a conversation with this man, never once bringing up his lifestyle. Because that's not the issue. The issue is his faith. Or the absence therein. And so we just began to talk about what was missing in his life and and, and his emptiness that he felt. And what began to happen is he began to understand that He was living a life according to his own desires and was not in any way trusting in the Lord. And he began to appreciate the significance of what God had done on his behalf. And there was a point in time, Russell was there, where he came to my house, sat down in my room, and said, I want to give my life to Christ. And I believe with all sincerity that before the living God, he submitted his life to Christ. And I never once brought up his lifestyle. But you know what happened? After that moment of faith, when the Spirit of God came into his life, he, on his own initiative, said, this is not God's best for me, is it? And I was able to come alongside him and say, no, it's really not. Let's look at Scripture and see what God's best is. And understand what that means and how you live that life of faith. And the best is yet to come you got so much in store for what God has for you. And he came to that understanding. That his obedience was an outcome of his faith. This should be what happens when we understand obedience as a response to God's love. When we do what He says, but because we trust Him more than we trust ourselves. See, client, compliance with rules does not lead to a relationship A relationship is based on a trust that ends up in a life of obedience. Which brings me to the final point. Understanding biblical obedience is of significant importance to our life as well. In fact, this probably should have been listed first because we really can't impart anything to our own kids or to anyone else for that matter if we don't first possess it on our own. We've learned, and those of you who have been parenting a lot longer I have, uh, understand that they learn much more from what we model to them than they ever learn from what we say to them. So let me ask you the question. What does your life teach others about biblical obedience? Is obedience in your walk with Christ a requirement for His love or a response to His love? See, Jesus said, if you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. The more we grow in the understanding of his love, the more our heart is conformed into a life of obedience. Following a list of rules is ultimately ineffective long term. Why? Because it removes the heart. And the heart of the issue with obedience is our heart turns into legalism where we're defined by our actions instead of our worship. Jesus says, lead with your heart. Love me. And then your actions will follow. You'll obey what I say. There's that passage in Matthew that we're familiar with when Jesus speaking says, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your father who is in heaven. It's worship, isn't it? Obedience is an outcome of a Christ-centered faith. And a Christ-centered worship is the result of loving obedience. If you're struggling to walk in obedience, the heart of the issue is not your compliance with His commands. It's the understanding of His love. That's the heart of the issue. Because ultimately... (laughs) Your obedience is based on your understanding of His love. It's, in that sense, a moment of truth in our lives. Because if I believe that God is love, then I believe that He will always do His best for me. If I believe that God is all-knowing, then I believe His actions, His commands, His guidance is always right. If I believe God is all-powerful, then I believe that He can enable me to do His will. If I love Him, I will obey Him. What a great assurance of faith. When we know that to be true and we respond a life of obedience in response to a heart of love. A love that's been perfected in us. See, our obedience is the outcome of our faith. Understanding biblical obedience impacts how we raise our kids It impacts how we relate with others. And ultimately, it defines how we live life ourselves. And so my prayer, based on what we've looked at this morning, is that we follow the example of Christ, whose life of obedience flowed out of His loving submission to God's will because of His perfect trust in God's perfect love. I pray that our life of obedience reflects that same understanding and have great assurance that we are His child when that is true. Let's pray together. God, thank You for just the understanding this morning that our obedience is not that which we display to earn Your love, but it is that which we display because of Your love. It is a response to what has been perfected in us by the work of Your Spirit as we are conformed more into Your image, which is a life that is consistently following the will of the Father. A heart that desires to do what He says more than it desires to do what I want to do. So, Father, may that describe who we are as Your people. May we encourage each other in that. May we look at the truths of Scripture and have great affirmation. That They describe who we are in You. And Father, thank You for that promise that You have perfected in us that which is necessary for us to be in a relationship with You and live in obedience to that great love. I pray that each of us live that in a way that brings glory to Your name this week. That our obedience unfolds as a heart of worship. And that others see that And that they enter into that same worship of you because they see the beauty of what it means to trust you. Thank you, Father, for our time this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen.